Thanks for pressing play. Our guest today is a man that Time Magazine calls one of the world's most 100 most influential people. His name is Martin Lindstrom, and he's a best-selling author and branding and culture guru. And he's got a brand new book out, and man, is it <laughs> important and timely. It's called The Ministry of Common Sense, How to Eliminate Bureaucratic Red Tape, Bad Excuses, and Corporate Bullshit. And we have a captivating conversation, and Martin sheds light on some uh, very eye-opening ideas, like why empathy is dying and what we can do about it, why common sense has eroded, and uh, what we can do about that too, and a whole lot more that's going to be fascinating, things like how Botox is hurting the relationships between mothers and babies, why um, Netflix has a bizarre hugging policy, the impact of women driving in Saudi Arabia, and a lot more. Um, And listen closely for Martin's theory on why some people get a lot more opportunities in life than others. It's quite fascinating. Also, you should know that we recorded this episode in the late spring uh, when Martin's book was originally going to come out, and it's come out now. Uh, Regardless, I think you're going to absolutely love this one. And this is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. We're sponsored by my good friends at Oracle NetSuite, the world's number one cloud business system. Check out netsuite.com slash different and my friends at splunk are the leaders in data to everything visit splunk.com slash d two e and learn how to turn data into doing as well i'd like to encourage you to visit lockhead.com and sign up for our our, uh, newsletter because we have a new newsletter coming out very soon it is going to be to the best of uh, our knowledge the first ever on category design it's called category pirates and it's coming to an inbox near you soon now hey ho let's go So, Martin, I understand you were just at a rock concert in Saudi Arabia. Is that right? <laughs> it is. This sounds crazy, I think, for, for, for most people. But uh, concerts, cinemas, and women driving was banned until recently. So I got the chance to sneak into one of these concerts and see how an entire country is transforming, which I think is a historic moment. And it really is amazing to experience how women are liberated in a way that never been before in this part of the world. Wow. So, so take me to the rock concert in Saudi Arabia. What was it like? Well, what was amazing about it was, first of all, there's no alcohol served. Uh, so people are really there <laughs> with real energy. But it was even more crazy because women were driving there and you have never seen women driving until a year ago. So you see an entire population of around 40 million people starting to drive in cars. I mean, for you and I, it sounds like an ordinary thing, but in Saudi Arabia, it's never existed before. So my driver was a woman, and it was the second time she'd been out driving, and she was almost shaking because she was so excited about being liberated. So it's just like amazing and such a warm experience to see how these suppressed women are suddenly getting freedom. Wow. So, I mean, I can imagine it in terms of what it could mean for people, but of course I'm not there. So, so maybe unpack that a little bit. What, what does it really mean for women to be liberated around driving? 
But what's crazy about this is that when it was introduced originally, uh, the government thought that a lot of women would uh, apply for a driver license, but they didn't. Um, and the reason why is really a, a metaphor I'm also using in my, my new book. It, it's, it's coming back to an experiment done with chickens. The chicken was stuck into a cage and they were in this cage for half a year. And one day the cage were open to the beautiful green grass and the, the sun was shining, the birds were singing and the chickens went out and guess what happened? They went straight back in again. I know exactly what happened. Yes. <laughs> and so this is what I call the chicken cage syndrome. It's the idea of that we are afraid of change. Now, remember, if you've been a woman stocked into your home your entire life, I know it's difficult to imagine, the blinds are down because you're not allowed to have the curtains open. And whenever you leave your home, either your brother or your husband have to drive you or a driver, you are petrified of leaving that home in the end of the day because fear is so prominent. So from one day to another, you're opening these cages and, and a lot of women are still staying inside shaking because they're so afraid of what is going on out there in the real world. What's happening now? Uh, remind me how long, Martin, it's been since women got the right to drive? It's about a year ago. We helped actually a lot on this case. So we have established driving schools here. So one of the things I do, I'm typically called in to make bigger transformations, either in companies, in governments, in countries. I don't take a political stand, but my rule of thumb is to do something for the better. So we were called in some time ago to help setting up driver schools and really to make this revolution happen. So it's happened for about a year now. Wow. And so um, what's it been like uh, being in your role of helping to bring driving schools to uh, elevate uh, women's freedom in Saudi Arabia for the last year or so? It gave me a sense of purpose I never tried before. And, and what it comes down to is when you talk about it on a distance, you don't realize how humiliating it is not to be able to leave your, your home. But I've spent time across the world living with consumers in their homes in more than 3,000 different homes I lived in, can you believe it? And across more than 100 countries. So I live with consumers. And how do you know where you are when you wake up, Martin? <laughs> I don't. Please don't ask me. <laughs> but, well, you know, it's true. It, it, it's crazy. And, and what happens is that when you live with people, you start to see the world from their point of view and you start to experience the pain they have. And this comes back to one of the things I'm so focused on today, which we are missing in our world, which is the lack of empathy. We mm. have lost it completely. I mean, there was a study done recently showing that the degree of empathy among more than 10,000 students in the U.S. have dropped 50% over the last decade. And the reason why it's disappearing is not just because of the smartphones where we don't look at each other anymore. I mean, think about it. Uh, we have a phone, right? The first thing we do whenever we have a phone, well, try it yourself. Have you tried that you're sitting in a bar you're waiting for someone and that person is not cheering up. What's the first thing you do? Uh, you know, I'll wait a few, few minutes, five minutes, maybe 10 minutes, but certainly within somewhere between five and 10 minutes, I'm sending a text for sure. Exactly. You look at your phone and you do something with the phone, anything with the phone. So you don't look like a complete loser, right? No, it's funny you mentioned this, Martin. I was just in uh, Las Vegas for uh, an event with my friends at Splunk and I was going down to the meeting area. And I got down out the elevator shaft. I walked, I was probably halfway there 
when I realized I don't have my fucking phone. And it was in that moment, and I was a little, I was on the edge of being late, maybe not quite late, but I certainly wanted to be on time. Anyway, long story longer, I had this moment where I was like, do I leave it or do I go get it? And of course, you know what decision I made. I do. <laughs> but it, that is so funny, right? And, and but what, I'll tell you two other things. One thing which is, with the phone, we also have stopped observing we don't meet people anymore, right? I sat in a bar the other day in New York City, and there were six people sitting next to me, all on their phones. And I said to the bartender, why did you choose your job? He said, I love to meet new people. And then he looked at me and, say, and said to me, I'm resigning now because I don't meet people anymore. But, but the first thing which I find scary is that we never get bored anymore. And boredom is the foundation for creativity. It's that pause where you reflect, you defragment your brain, so to speak, almost like a computer. And that pause doesn't exist anymore. And through all those different things happening as a consequence of this stuff, what happens is that empathy is dying. It's dying through the use of the phone. It's dying with the fact that I'm swiping left or right on Tinder, six seconds of evaluation. It's dying through the fact, and this is crazy, Another study shows now that just by using Botox, that the micro movements in our faces are disappearing and the relationship between moms and the babies is disappearing. So all these factors accumulated means that empathy is disappearing out of our world. I hate to interrupt you, but you just said something that is like rattling around in my brain like I didn't just say that. Did you say that uh, Botox is changing the way babies and mothers build relationships? Absolutely. Because what happens is that we all have micro-movements. And these micro-movements, we detect not no, in a conscious way, but subconsciously through our AI. And that is what's creating empathy. And I'll give you a very good example. So I was in Hong Kong, of all places, seven days a week for a holiday. I'm crazy, I know. Um, and... And people were wearing these facial masks everywhere. And I could immediately feel that I could not connect with people because you cannot see their face. You only see their eyes. It's a little bit the same as here in Saudi Arabia where you can't see women's uh, face. You can only see the eyes. So you are basically cutting off another channel of empathy exchange. And so what happens in our society is that the more we cut those factors away, the less I can put myself in another person's shoes, the less I really care about other people. And that's what you see in our very self-obsessed society right now, where in a private way, we, of course, feel disconnected. That's the reason why the suicide rate is going up at more than 80% in the US and the UK, but also in corporations, in businesses, empathy is just gone. We have silos, we have you know, KPIs driving us, but they're single-minded you know, divisions, so divisions don't work together anymore. And I really don't care about what other people do in other divisions, so there's no collaboration in organizations, which then spins out products and services was disjointed and where they're more focused on you know, what is see, what what is happening from my point of view in the organization, what is the bureaucracy I have to all right to make things happen, rather than looking at the consumer and their point of view. You know, it, it's interesting that you say this. Uh, it, it's just on my mind. I, I, you know, I'm involved with a number of things here and there, and, and one of them right now is um, is a, a meaningful transaction. 
so I was in this discussion with myself, two other business people and two lawyers talking about the sort of ins and outs of this transaction we're trying to get done. And the uh, other party came forward with some questions and there was sort of a dialogue about how to answer these questions. And there's one of the questions that the answer is not great. It's not bad, but it's not as good as we'd like it to be. And we don't want to spook the other side, right? Because we're trying to get a deal done. And so there's this discussion, Martin, that ensues on sort of how to deal with this. And one lawyer is sort of saying, well, you know, we could sort of, anyway, there's a, there's a, a positioning discussion. And I sort of, I wasn't sure, but it sort of felt like there was a chance that we could say something that was accurate, but not really indicate what was going on. And that mm -hmm. even though we weren't necessarily lying in any way, it could be disingenuous because it wasn't a hundred percent clear, if you know what I mean. I do. And so I found myself listening to this and as a man of a certain vintage, I said, well, look, I'm no lawyer. And I think it's important to position it and think about how to communicate this. And that said, we should be governed by what we're always governed by, which is what would a good person do here? Yeah. Right. We have reputations. And the reason we have reputations is because for decades, not that we always all got it right or whatever, I'm, but, but I, I tried. I gave it a real shot to say, what would a good person do in this situation? And that's fantastic because that's really the essence of what I think very few people are doing today. And it links me back to the core focus I've had over the last two years as I did the research for, for my book. I said, one of the things which are disappearing out of our society along with empathy is lack of common sense. There is no common sense in our society anymore because common sense is first of all like a muscle memory. It's like a muscle. You have to train it and it becomes stronger. And if you don't use it, it becomes weaker. But guess what? It's incredibly weak at the moment because remember, by empathy, I say you put yourself in the shoes of another person. Well, that's really, that's really common sense because sometimes you actually have to look at things from a different point of view, exactly as you experience with your lawyers, right? So this is where I feel we have a huge crisis, an institutional crisis in our society because things are mad at the moment. I mean, I'll give you an example. <laughs> I went to, I, I mean, they're mad. I mean, I went to TSA the other day. I went through TSA the other day in JFK in airport, right? And, and there was a sign saying just before I went through, and people who are 75 years or older uh, do not have to go through the screening process. So I went up to this guy and I said to him, do you have any sort of guidelines for that, that if you're a terrorist, you actually retire at the age of 75? You know, and of course the guy like, is that the, the, manda the mandatory retirement age for terrorists? <laughs> exactly, right? And it, it, it's crazy. So I went through the airport. I, 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 I forgot my headset, so I had to buy a new pair of headsets. And I went into this kiosk. I bought this amazing pair of headset. And what I didn't realize was on my way to the gate that they were wrapped in this amazing thick piece of bubble plastic. And I started to try to open these ones. And I used every tool in my box. I mean, I used a nail clipper. I used my fingers. I was biting on it. At the end of the day, I had four passengers trying to open this thing. We ended up with this flight taking two hours with my hands nearly bleeding. Everyone was angry and a perfect pair of headsets 
wrapped inside a plastic box, right? And this is, and I'm asking myself, who the heck can develop such a stupid concept? And this is what I'm saying is, where did common sense go? Common sense had disappeared internally in the organizations and externally in our daily lives because no one questions things anymore. Do, do you get what I mean? Yes, and, and I see this on all dimensions. Here's one that's on my mind. The hotel in Vegas, right? Yeah. Uh, they got the best elevators in the world, right? These, you've been to these places, you know. I have. Anyway, yeah. I'm in the elevator and below the uh, the keypad where you press the button for what floor you want, yep. there's some kind of a box down there. I don't and I don't know what's in there. Maybe an emergency phone or you know, but you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's below <laughs> that button yeah, area, yeah. and there's a sign there, Martin. And guess what it says on the sign? Do not jump. We've gotten to a place where people are so fucking stupid that you have to put a sign in an elevator that says "Do not jump" in it. <laughs> oh, this is this is this is crazy. I I I went I went to the the, the toilet though just just recently, and it said, "Do not stand on the toilet seat when you pee." What, what, what country are we living in? What, 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 what's, going, what, what's going on here? And when, when it happens everywhere, I spoke to a guy from, from one of the largest hardware stores in the country, and he said to me, we're fucking stupid in our organization. I said, what do you mean about that? He said, well, listen, in our Miami brands, we are selling snowblowers. I said, why? Well, because that's a standard thing to supply 15 snowblowers to everyone when we hit the winter seasons. So he said, does anyone question it? No, it's just a standard, so we have to follow it. So it, it's impenetrating through everything. And what really pisses me off is that it's become a norm. We're not even questioning it anymore. But what happens as a consequence is we become increasingly frustrated with all these red tape or what I call emotional stretch jackets, which is everywhere. I mean, the other day, I spoke to a good friend of mine working in one of the largest privately held companies in the U.S. based in Minneapolis. Guess who? And and he said to me, when you, you know, take a day off sick, right, you have to warn them two days before you get sick so you can take the day off. Not, not sure how that one works. But this is what we're dealing with at the moment. And On my Thursday, is, I think I'm going to wake up with a fever, Martin. <laughs> The thing I wonder about this is, can you imagine the meeting where this policy gets adopted? Can you imagine? Wouldn't it be great to have body cams on these people? Wouldn't you want to see this discussion around our new policy is you got to tell us two days in advance if you're going to be sick? I would love to see those things because here's one thing I did the other day. I said to myself in the preparation for releasing my new, new book, I said, let me give small children age six to eight, all these things, all these things which we as adults has become numb to. We just don't see those two pictures and see what the reaction is. Their answers were so intelligent that I started to be embarrassed about my own behavior because they could cut straight through it. And they, they define common sense in a common sense way. Even when I ask adults today what it is, they can't even answer it because we become know, so attached to being politically correct in every aspect of what we say, so we don't even dare to say things anymore as they are. And that is where I think we have a problem in our society, right? So there's an interesting thing about that. 
I have now developed this new uh, sort of hearing muscle. And when, when, I th when, when I feel like the other person talking is being indirect for some reason, uh, and I used to d d ascribe it to more nefarious things. I have now, particularly living in Northern California, where, you know, to put it directly, I think Silicon Valley is the birthplace of what we call out here the grin fuck. Yeah. Right? Where I smile at you and then I tell yeah. you how wonderful yeah. you are and how great it is to yeah. work with you. And two seconds yeah. later, I'm telling you, everybody, what an asshole you are and you should be fired. That whole yeah. thing. Yeah. And so. Yeah. I've developed this muscle when I think I hear either indirect language or even potentially the, 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 that going on. I say to people, Hey, tell me what you're telling me. <laughs> so you're looking for the subtext. And, and I think, I think that is, it's such a good point you're raising here. The problem is that I think people are petrified of standing out. People are petrified of, questioning things because of the ramification for it. And what is so important, if I go back to, the, one guy said to me the other day, so how would you fix the TSA? Because first of all, my view about all this stuff is that you need to give trust back to people. We don't trust people anymore. Our systems locks us into structures. The more we guided by principles and and, and, and all these compliance and all this stuff, the less we dare to make decisions on our own. And the more we act that way, the less we actually think on behalf of people around us. We think more about ticking all these boxes. So one of the things I said to this guy for TSA was, hey, listen, let's install a common sense person in TSA. Just one person. So when you, for example, are arrested because you have a box of tic tacs in your pocket, which by the way is a true case. A guy was arrested because he had tic tacs in his pants. And and when you're arrested, that you call a line and that, <laughs> that is a common Martin, sense line. That that reminds me of an old joke. Are, are, uh, is that, are those tic tacs in your pants or are you just happy to see me? Well, I don't know. Sorry, I, I couldn't. Help, I couldn't help myself, Martin. I really do want to hear the story. <laughs> I, you know, thank you for derailing me completely. But I would steal that one. I tell you. But you know, I think. I think in the end of the day, establish a call line into to the common sense, and 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 that is what you have to install. People which are employed with a simple focus of looking at the world from another point of view. And we need that in everything. And, and the reason why, and I'm so sorry for plucking my book here, and I, I hate myself for doing it, but I need to say this if it's okay. <laughs> the, re the, the, reason, the reason why I wrote the Minister of Common Sense is because I was working in a bank and they had the most ridiculous rules. I'll tell you about one of the rules. One of the rules were that when people, they had this headquarter, with 8,000 people working in the headquarter. Now, they only had 6,000 seats or desks in this place, right? So there would be 2,000 people meeting up for work in the morning and they literally would be told to go home. But here's the crazy thing. When they come home, they were not allowed to use the computers because compliance and privacy were prohibiting them from using the computers. So that would be unproductive for a whole day. And so what people started to do was to show up early in the morning and they were complaining about the elevators were too slow, so they installed faster elevators. So people could get faster to the desk and realize there was no desk, right? So not, on, not only that happened, 
people, of course, realized it didn't really help with those 2,000 discs. I'm not kidding. This is a true story. So they installed sensors underneath the desk. And these sensors were registering if people are sitting at the desk or not, because some McKinsey type of person would come in and say, hey, there's an empty desk there, an empty desk there. So there's a lot of unused you know, areas. And, and of course, people don't know how to navigate. So almost like a car park, you would then find your way from the system. What they forgot to install was the idea of the people go to bathrooms. So people would now go to the bathroom and the center would say, clear zone, go ahead. So when they would come back, there would be a full desk again. And people, so people wouldn't dare to go to the, to the toilets, right? And so this company you know, inspired me. And so I started to work with the bank and, and they had a, a similar common sense issues. And through this workshop, this lady says to me, hey, we don't have common sense. And I said to her, you're so right. So I said to her, what should we do? She said, why don't we open the Ministry of Common Sense? And we did it. We started up a ministry inside the bank to collect all the stupidities in this company, right? And we had within the first month thousands of issues, small bite-sized irritations and frustrations, which both were frustrating for the customer, but also for uh, the, the staff. And they were solved. And within here, we've unleashed that emotional stress jacket. And that's really the reason why I gave birth to the Minister of Common Sense, because that was really a way for me to say to the world, the world has turned mad. No one is saying it. God damn it, we need to change this right now because we are derailing with all that stuff, uh, including exactly what you're saying. It seems like we just are optimizing for the biggest idiot, right? And so everything's got to be created. And, and of course, there's a legal dimension to this too, right? Like every time I look at a uh, coffee cup and I see that sign on it says hey this is fucking hot don't pour it on your junk you know like really we need yeah. to be told this right and so it just it just yeah. it, we seem to be smashed with it but again it's I think this is your point or one of your points you'll help me here um, but that we've optimized for the biggest idiot we have optimized for the big idiot that's on one side of the spectrum Absolutely. We also done something which is even more horrible. We also catering for the lowest common denominator, which is that person stealing or which is untrustworthy in organization, which is screwing everything up. And that person or those people, which is the one percenter, is damaging everything else for the 99%. So we create rules and regulations around it in order to protect the companies, which really is what you're saying, but it's in a compliance way inside an organization. So what happens is we do not trust people anymore. Employees are not trusted anymore. Uh, and, and not only that, we do not give people a mandate of freedom to think on their own. So we become petrified of making decisions because what happens if, uh, and suddenly we become robots. And that's where I become really scared because one of the things I'm writing a lot about in, in, in the book is the fact that increasingly people are reporting to AI systems. So there is a, a large insurance company here in the country, in the US, which um, have AI systems installed. So if you sound tired, there'll be a little coffee cup appearing on the display. If you are sounding too cherry, then it will say you had to be sad. You are reporting to an AI system. Now, I don't need to tell you how motivated would you be if there's a ro robot telling you how to behave. Just go to the Amazon warehouse and see how motivated yeah, hold, people are. Hold on here, handsome. This is happening now? This is happening right now, right now. In, in banking? 
in banking and insurance companies, you have multiple for like companies. people who are on the phone with customers and, and you know customer service and support or sales and the like. Absolutely, there is an AI technology. You can look it up in my book. I can't remember what the name is of that uh, insurance company. Those banks. It's public knowledge that you literally have AI systems controlling. That's their boss. They only have AI systems as their boss. Now I need to ask you, what do you think happens with empathy then? If you're reporting to a robot with have zero emotions you lose empathy. And that's where I'm scared, I'm petrified that we get into a point where we don't even rebel against that. We just say, well, I guess I can't do anything. You know, it's funny. The first thing that pops into my mind is what I would do is um, I would learn to type with two middle fingers up at all times. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good start. I bought But you know, but you have made a brand out of saying what you're saying and saying what you're thinking, right? And, 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 but most people don't dare to do that, right? Uh, I, I do the same as you do. I, I, I call it spade for a spade. I come from a country, Denmark, where we say the truth pretty much all the time. And I'm sure we offend a lot of people by doing it. But I do feel at this stage, we got to a point where things are derailing. And so that's what I'm saying. When you want to recover common sense, it's your turn now to rebel against it. That is to say, if you work in a company and things are stupid, there's certain things you can do to reinstall common sense. But also if you as a consumer are using this website, which by the way, is asking you to fill in your age and your credit card number and the expiration date and all this stuff, and then you submit and it says error, and it doesn't tell you where the error is, or even worse, it doesn't tell you where the error is, but it deletes all the text already, and you have to do it again. When you experience all these stupidities, it is a consequence of idiocracy or stupidity happening within the organization where they don't think as a consumer. And I think the best example I can give you is the other day I was, I was uh, uh, watching television, I was in Miami, and, and I had this remote control and I wanted to switch off my television, right? And guess what? There was two off buttons. And, and I was just thinking to myself, is the first one to switch off the television and the second one to switch is off, extra off somehow? I don't know how it works. Uh, so I had my butt in the air, unplugging the air conditioning, the midi bar and my television, right? And, and so it worked. Now, this is the worst thing. You, you think I'm kidding now. It's true. So I'm sitting on this plane two months later and this guy sits next to me and, and, and we're having a conversation and, and he's, he says, where are you from? And I'm saying, I'm an author and, and all this stuff and, and saying, where are you from? Well, I'm from a company which you probably never heard about. I said, try me. And he says, he's from this, this company. I said, my God, I know you guys. And I said to him, what the fuck went wrong with your organization? And he looked at me with this, the Blair's eyes, like a day in the headlights. He said, what do you mean? I said, listen, I looked at this remote control and I don't know how to use it. He said, well, I'll tell you a reason why. It's simple. Four years ago, we had a conflict in our company. No one was responsible for anything. So we separated the entire remote control into zones. So the video department was responsible for that zone and the violence for that zone and the PlayStation with that zone. And I said, so you have three on buttons on your remote control. He said, maybe, he said, but we know exactly what our roles are. That is my point. Where did common sense go, right? <laughs> I love that. And, you know, the other one I love, I, 
I, I have this fantasy, Martin, that um, the the people who create products that don't either work or behave in anything that could remotely be called an intuitive way, their punishment for this is they should be locked in solitary confinement with their creation. And the, the one I have this fantasy about the most often, I think, is the automated sink and soap dispenser in the fucking airport bathrooms. <laughs> because they don't work a lot. And for some reason, I wear a lot of black t-shirts and blue jeans. It's really simple. I've been wearing them my whole life. I like them. I don't have to think much about it. And for some reason, the sensors on those things don't like black. And so if you wear a lot of black, you got to stand in front of it and wave and do the hokey pokey and try to get the thing to come out. And, and then it comes on, but only for a second or it's too hot or what. Like, And so I just think the people who invented that should be locked in a private solitary cell with nothing but those for at least 15 years. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm laughing because we were working with a major airline company, right? And they wanted to cut costs internally in the airline. So uh, here's what they did. They, they had these consulting companies, probably the McKinsey's, coming into this company, right? They wanted to cut costs. And they realized that when you, when you, you know, get a cup of coffee, which were free of charge for the staff, right? Uh, people buy it a lot, they use it a lot of coffee and they wanted to cut costs. So they said, why don't we cut the size of a cup to almost half, right? So when you press, you only get a, sort of a half a cup, a little bit more than half rather than to the edge. Really clever, except what do people do when they get half full cup of coffee? <laughs> they press one more time and then they get a little bit too much coffee and they pour it out, right? And we end up with more waste, right? It's a little bit the same as the stupid paper in toilets where you have to, you know, with this sensor stuff, when you have to get paper towels and you have to wave your hand in front of them or you have to press this thing and you press extra, 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 extra because you know that sensor is waiting for you. So you end up with five pieces rather than two. And then you take one extra piece to, to, to touch this handle anyway because there's bacteria on it. The world has gone mad. That's what I'm saying. I'm really tired of it. <laughs> and that's the reason why I feel it's time to put a, a line in the sand and stop this thing, right? Uh, Martin, is it wrong for one man to love another man? <laughs> <laughs> well, I started this interview by saying you are good looking. You know that. I know you're married. <laughs> I'm just saying it. And the reason why is because I like you. You and I are very similar on this one. I think we have a problem, okay? <laughs> Now, I chapter four in your book uh, spoke to my heart. And so I loved and I love language and I love the use of language to change thinking. And so I love this notion, this paradigm you're introducing of politics being the invisible straitjacket. Yeah. Let's talk about this, Martin. Why, why did you want to go here and get into this? I wanted to go into this because politics is a power game. And the power game is used in order to paralyze people around you. And sometimes people are not aware of how dangerous this thing is and how much it demotivates people or destroys a company. And in return, creates what I call an immune system. An immune system is a defense mechanism against change. We are, as people, petrified of change. It's very strange. We will probably say to everyone, I love change, but less than 10% on planet Earth really love change. And the reason why is because we are 
afraid of, of the unknown. So, so two things are happening here. One thing which is happening is people are protecting their jobs and their function because they're afraid of being fired. And through that, politics is created. Politics is really where I see the world from my point of view. And I try to acquire as many people as can to see the world the same same way. But politics also is happening when I don't trust people. And, and I want to give you an example about how bad it can go. Um, so I work for a company called Maersk. Maersk is the largest shipping company in the world and sit on 21% of all trade in the world. So it's, it's, it's a big, big, big company. And I was invited to go to China to, to look into the customer experience because they received a ton of complaints all the time. And they couldn't understand why. So I was sitting in the call center listening into all these Chinese stuff with my interpreter. And I realized that basically every complaint they received was force majeure. Now, you and I know force majeure is the whole idea about an earthquake, something which you know, is pretty dramatic. But how can thousands of complaints be force majeure, right? So, so what happened here was I said, why? And we went back and I noticed that if you tick on your screen force majeure, it means you only had to fix or fill out one screen in, in the call center, right? But if you tick anything else, it's three screens, right? So of course, people are ticking the one screen. So why did they do that? Well, they did it because customer service, can you listen to this? is just crazy. Customer service was measured against time, not service, not experience, no time. Because someone in the system has said, that has to be time so we can squeeze the bottom line and get as many money out of the system as possible. And this is what we're seeing. That's where politics happens. That's when KPIs sometimes are penetrating itself through the system and paralyzing common sense. And, and what happened is that people get to a point where they can't offer the service they want because there's a rule set through KPIs and people have an agenda in the top and they're forcing it through the system. And that's really where you have an emotional stretch jacket where you feel this is not right, but I have to do it. Do you get what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And so like a lot of things, I think in life, there's some magic line we're trying to, right? I, I remember when things like KPIs became uh, um, prevalent in management. And of course, the promise was, uh, hey, you can't you can't manage what you can't measure. It was a mantra we heard and still still here. And and that knowing what I'm being measured yeah. on, knowing what my deliverables are at a precision level is great. You know, it's one reason why uh, a lot many salespeople like sales. It's very, very measurable, very clear. You hit your numbers. You didn't hit your numbers. So tried to bring that to other parts of the business that were maybe less manageable in that regard. So uh, you know, I could argue there's a lot of positive to that, right? And I think a bunch of people would. H however, I think there's an emerging argument to make that says we've overextended on that. I, I think, yes, we have overextended. A couple of pieces of advice. I, I want to take you through for one minute a historic background for why we got to this point. You have to remember in the old days, a set of KPIs were very simple. Happy customer, earning money. Very simple. Then we broke it down back in the 70s and 80s when we went on the stock market. Why? Because Wall Street wanted to have quarter announcements. So they wanted to have insight into the company. So we broke it down to mini KPIs. Each of them was still represented by a silver lining of customer focus because it just broke up, but we still could sort of report what each department was, was, was delivering on. But what happened over time was, as time moved on, we forgot about the silver lining. And these small arrows, KPIs, became their own little ecosystem. 
And they sort of went around in all sorts of different ways and had nothing to do with each other. And suddenly you have this company with a lot of silos measured against completely different things. And of course, what is my motivation to work with another person if we are not measured against the same goal, but one is saying, yes, you have to go forward. Another one is measured against going backwards. And that is really the case we're seeing right now. So KPIs with good intentions have turned into become almost the evil of, of why corporate America is is struggling at the moment. And what I'm saying is we need to, to, to change that. And the way we need to change that is to trust people in a different way. And this is really fascinating. I think you will love this study. So a study was done last year where bullets, bullets, ordinary bullets, the one you have in your pocket, were dropped randomly across the world with a $20 note in it. And then there was a business card with the name, details and some other stuff. Now, guess what? All common sense will say that these wallets will be stolen, disappeared, no one will hear about them, in particular in countries like Pakistan or Iran or some obscure country somewhere in the Middle East. Guess what happened? In all more than 90% of the cases, 90% of the cases, all the wallets came back. And there was actually very little difference between the very poor countries and the very rich countries. In fact, in some cases, the rich countries were worse at it than the poor, but it was above 90%. What we learned from the study was trust is built into our mindset. Yes, it may be just 1% you don't trust, but there's 99% you can trust. However, the systems today are working completely against that. They basically say, I don't trust you. And because I don't trust you, we need to fix you with the straitjacket of KPIs and guidelines and procurement and all that stuff, which means that I can't breathe. And that's where common sense disappears because you as an individual are not asked to be thinking anymore. You just have to follow orders. And then my question is to you, why are you in that job then? Why do we have a real person in that job if you're not asking that person to be human? And that's where I think we have a huge disconnect. So that's where we end up with a warning on a one of these, you know, one of these bathing ball, bathing balls for the swimming pool where half of the ball is with legal text on it in 19 different languages, just as six-year-old Peter is reading all of that stuff before he starts playing with that ball. That's where we end up with these stupidities. But the worst thing is we don't even question anymore. We just say, I guess it is. I can't change it, right? You know, it's interesting as you're talking, Martin, I'm thinking about, and I'm not an expert in HR at all. So, you know, maybe I'm going to say something stupid, but it just feels that over my career, and maybe I was naive in the beginning, I don't know, maybe you can tell me, that HR has sort of really drifted into a function that in a lot of ways is about protecting the company. Oh, definitely. And of course, HR, HR has a role to play there. I'm not, I'm not being ignorant or, or silly. Uh, there's, there's a component of that that HR needs to do. However, we were sort of told that HR at legendary companies and, you know, we'd create this culture and we'd empower people and we'd train people and we would have good policies on, you know, uh, mat leave or vacation time or healthcare or uh, time off for educating yourself or whatever the things are that, right. And, and so to, we, we got, I think, Many of us thought HR was about sort of driving the culture and making it a great place for people to work. And, and maybe at some companies it still is. And some, I, I hope it is. But at the same time, it feels like on this one, we've, we've, we've over, over corrected into a more protect the company, more legalistic, uh, and, and therefore more precise 
and we take the thinking out of your hands and put it into our hands with a bunch of policies. Listen, I'm so surprised that you're so politically correct in what you're saying right now. I would not have thought that about you because let's just get to the point. The point is in 95%, HR is a legal function designed to make, you know, to wash your hands so that they won't be sued later on. That is the reality with, with, with HR. Now, when I speak with HR, many people are admitting that. Uh, but just to talk about common sense here again. When NBC fired Matt Lawyer, remember him, uh, which were on Today's show, they established a, they, they moved the HR function to the middle of the editorial floor at NBC. So everyone could see just to make it more visible. Who do you know which would go into a glass room in the middle of the editorial floor to HR and talk about the problem. No one would do it. And then just to make things even worse, they created the hock and release rule. Do you know what the hock release rule is? That's a rule where you're not allowed to touch people too much. So you hock them, but you had to release within a second. So it becomes rather very quickly. You sort of cut off a release like a, a parachute, right? A parachute. And at Netflix, they had the five-second rule. I don't know if it's still running, but it certainly had it for almost a year. The Netflix rule is that you're not allowed to look at other staff members if you're working at Netflix for more than five seconds. Then you had to look away and reset the look, if you get what I mean, and then look back again. Developed, invented, and launched by HR. <laughs> is it me? <laughs> That's fucking insane. <laughs> I'm just saying to you, what I don't understand is when people talk about it, they laugh for a second and then they go back to the daily duties. No one stops and say, where did common sense go? And that is what makes me so concerned. Yeah. And, and you know, on this one, I'm a very physical person. I have been my whole life. And, um, and so I hug people and, and, you know, of course, you have to be in tune with the other person. There's some people it's not appropriate to hug. And I try to know that. And listen, over the last several years post Me Too, I think many of us have sort of rethought some things. But that said, um, here's what I didn't do. I didn't do what a lot of, uh, I think, men did, which is they said, I'm, we're not, I'm not touching anybody. I'm not going near anybody anymore. And look, I understand that reaction. But at the same time, to your point, as a guy who is uh, certainly trying real hard not to be a creep, far from it, and as a guy who's very happily married, I've also said, look, most women aren't stupid. They know the difference. We all know the difference. Maybe you can't write it down in a policy, you know, if you think about hugs, but you know a difference between an appropriate hug and an inappropriate hug. We all do, right? Um, and so, it's just, it's very sad to me. And to your point, I have decided that to put it bluntly, the risk outweighs the reward because in my entire 30 plus year career, I haven't had HR, an HR issue because women, and frankly, man, I hug the dudes too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I kiss my male friends. I mean, not coworkers, but I mean, I'll hug, I'll hug male coworkers as often as female coworkers. So I think in either case, people could tell the difference between a friendly hug and, and something other than that. And you're onto a point here because 
that's the reason why you're so good at connecting with people and create empathy. And that's probably the reason why people love listening to your show because they feel they can resonate with you. They feel they connect with you. But what happens in our world when suddenly we are not doing it anymore because we're afraid? What do when we are hiding behind our screens, when we use this Botox stuff, when, when we evaluate people in seven seconds, maybe it's why being left or right. When we hammered with rules and regulations and guidelines and had to tick all sorts of different boxes. What happens is that this empathy thing is disappearing. And that's what's making me very sad. And here's a technique I'm using, and I'm sure you're doing the same. Whenever I have meetings across the country in the US, I always swear I always swear within the first 10 minutes if it's a very tense feeling in the meeting. And what happens is I can almost feel like it's the buckle unbuckling. I can feel like it gives everyone permission to be themselves. And at that moment, it's almost like people step up and they say, I can express what I'm thinking. I don't need to have that two-layered behavior as we all somehow feel we need to have in order to tick certain compliance boxes, right? I think it's time for us now to say there is a risk with everything, as it is with life. Life is a risk. Whenever you walk over the street, there's a risk. I think it's very important for us now to have our little movement. And the movement is to say, if you are frustrated about what's happening, don't just complain, change it. And, and, and I'm pretty sure you will notice everyone else is thinking what you're thinking. They're just not raising their voice. And you'll very quickly create these movements of change. But I think it's time to get to this point. I mean, I'll give an example. The other day I had a massage and I had to fill out, I'm not kidding, seven pages of legal disclaimers. And I really enjoy you know, filling out these legal disclaimers. I think it's joyful. So one of them was, are you pregnant? And I clicked, yes. Okay. Love it. I have been pregnant, just so you know, for the record, 157 times so far. No one has really noticed I'm pregnant because they just go through all these things and just say, how are you doing? What's your condition? No one reads the stuff. No one couldn't care less. Oh, by the way, did you know that when you travel into the US and you're not an American, uh, then you actually, when you fill out all these forms, you have to answer if you're a terrorist or not. I wonder how many terrorists have filled that box up so far. Only the ones that have retired at 75. You got it. <laughs> you got it. Right. Because so, in that so case, they're, right. they, they used to be, but they're not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they just had to get out of the system. Oh, finally, my God, I can say the truth about how it was in the past. So, so I, I think that's, that's, I just tell you a funny story. This is crazy. So I had this meeting at a huge corporation in New York City the other day. And I had to go to, uh, to some meeting room and I asked the receptionist, what, what, what is my meeting room? She said, said to me, your meeting room is X2 PP219. I'm not kidding. That's what she said. So I said, so where is that? It's the second floor. So I went on the second floor and guess what? They have not structured this in an alphabetic way. All the things were kind of random. You had one called TTPX 22599. And you have all sorts of different combinations. Typically, sort of eight digits with numbers and, and everything mixed together in a nice mix so it would be extra safe. So I, I sort of said to people, does anyone remember this stuff? When we walked down the high, highway, I said, where's that room? And everyone was walking around confused. So they had these maps to follow 
for Iran. So I said to them, why is no one questioning this? And one guy said to me, it's IT. It's always IT. Okay. So I went up to IT. I said to them, why? And he said to me, well, it has to be safe. I said, what do you mean by it has to be safe? It has to be an eight-digit code, which is mixing numbers and figures, right? Num numbers and letters. So it's extra safe. I say, but this is not a password for your computer. No, no, no. I know it's not. But when we put it into our system, we don't want people to hack our meeting system. So everyone is ending up with these meeting room numbers where no one can find their way. So I said to people, why is no one questioning it? And as soon as you say the word IT, people roll their eyes and they say, that's it. Lost game. We can't do it. When people say it's compliance, lost game. When they say HR, lost game. Right? That's how, this is the red card, right, in football. So it's so interesting you say this, uh, you know, and I'll, let me pick on legal here for a second. I, I think there was a point in time where legal thought its job was to understand what the company was or the organization was trying to do and to help guide the company in achieving its goals in a legal slash compliant way and in a way that advantaged the company and protected the company. But their job was to help get the company to where it was going to go. Somewhere along the fucking line here, Martin, it shifted to our job is to tell the company what it can and can't do and what executives can and can't say, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they're, uh, they're the arbiters of uh, what the company can do and can't do. Yeah. Is this the transition you're talking about or how do you think about it? It is the transition I'm talking about because just like we talked about previously with the KBIs becoming their own ecosystem, so is the legal function. It's almost like, I'm not talking about every single lawyer on planet Earth, but a lot of them, it's almost like they need to justify their own job. And I think they rarely say to themselves, the longer the contract is, the more we are waving a red flag you know, ahead of the other person saying, you better be careful here. And there's a lot of things you have to look for. You know, if it's a short one-page contract, it comes down to people saying, we kind of trust you. And this just work on a handshake basis, because in most cases, people don't want to mess up with each other anyway, but they sort of go into a sort of a spin somehow. And I think what happens is, of course, the longer my contract is, the longer your contract is, the more feedback I give, the more feedback you give. It's a little bit the same as today. The reason why we have so many emails in our inbox is because there's a direct collision between the number of emails you send and the ones I receive. It kind of follows each other. So it goes, it's going out of proportion. And that's where we are. And because legal together with HR, together with compliance, together with all this conduct, all this stuff, it becomes almost like an authority in their own right. No one dares to question it. And then they build these empires. And, and that's why I think that the worst case of this stuff is then that legal then affects the consumer side and, and, and the culture side as well. Because when I now have to buy a product or a service, legal is now infusing the message through that whole system. So I had to fill out these long contracts. I mean, honestly, just to be, be honest here, how many times have you clicked a box saying, I accept when you have these privacy policies coming up on a website you're going to because of new privacy rules? In the, f the first two times, I read all of them, okay? Because I thought I had to kind of, right? Now I'm just clicking yes to whatever they say. I've given up. 
right? And this is the point we're getting at right now when we give up. You, you, you get what I mean? It's crazy. Well, yes, I'll give you two of my personal favorites. Uh, one of them is the amount of legal disclaimer bullshit that you have to say as a public company before you say anything, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. in the event yeah. of Sasquatch uh, climbing Mount yeah. Everest and shitting on the world, it may impact our number. And, you know, so there's this, uh, this whole list, right? This, the other simple one I love, I'm not sure if there's a building or a restaurant in California that doesn't have a sign somewhere that says this, this property is known to have chemicals in it that causes cancer. This fucking signs everywhere. It's like, well, so, so what, what are you telling me? Am I, I'm eating at a burger joint that is going to give me cancer or what, like everything. Give, what are you talking about? And so to your point, these warnings and these agreements are so everywhere that we pay attention to none of it. And I, 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 I got to tell you about this. I think if you ask most people who did business with me for much of my career, Martin, and you ask them what it was like to negotiate an agreement with me, they would tell you that I was a giant pain in the ass. And I think I was. And a little while ago, I had this aha. And the aha went like this. Now, this is on a personal level. I'm only ever doing business now with people that I love and want to do business with and trust implicitly. Period. Full stop. End of discussion. And so, therefore, I don't really give a shit what the agreement says. Because mm. we're going to have a handshake. Yeah. Because the truth is, the people I admire and respect the most, they do what's right because it's right. And you can do business with them in a handshake. There are a few venture capitalists in Silicon Valley that I've known for a long time. And I can do business with them on a handshake. And yes, there'll be legal agreements. And, 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 and those are the people that I want to do business with. And so I have completely reversed my negotiation strategy. I do the exact opposite. And for example, when I negotiate economics with somebody, um, I say, look, here's, here's how this is going to go. You're going to tell me what the number is. I'm going to ask, is that the best you can do? Or can you do a little bit better? You're going to tell me you can or you can't. And we're going to be done. Mm -hmm. Like I, I have tried to do as much of a 180 on all this as possible because the way I look at it is business is personal. And if you and I agree to do something together, then we're going to trust each other to do what's right. And I understand we need a legal document and, and I'm not an idiot, but at the same time, I'm not going to overly uh, get worried about that because if you don't pay me or you fuck me over or whatever, you know what, as a 51 year old guy, I've been fucked over and not paid so many times. I can't even count anymore. It just doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's, that's exactly the point. And I think that the issue we have here right now is that you are in a luxurious position because you have a brand and you also have established a lot of experience that you can do that. The sad news is a lot of people can't do that because they're locked into this stretch jacket we talked about which makes it super difficult for them to do anything. And I think that's the reason why it's time for all of us in a united way to, in a collective way, to to raise this issue and raise the voice uh, that we've gotten too far. Because if we are living in a world now where, if what I'm saying is true, that empathy is disappearing, if it's true what, I, what we see right now, the AI taking over and, and is running and managing people, if all this stuff is coming in left, right, and center, my question to you is, um, what 
is it left to human mankind? What what is our role? And 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 I, f- I find that super super sad right now because the role is none, and and that's 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 really the issue we have at the moment that there is increasingly our role is disappearing. So I think it's time for having a rebellious type of of uh, of movement going on here. And the way we do that, I, I want to come back to to my analogy with the chicken case I told you about first in our conversation that one of the things we learned with the chicken case experiment is the way you get chickens out is this. If you imagine you have four chicken cages and they're all facing each other uh, so we can all see the open gate. And, and, and you now have to place a piece of corn to get the chickens out. Where would you place it? At the very edge of the, of the cage. Exactly. Most people would say in the center, but the distance from the chicken cage to the center may be six or seven feet, too dangerous. But if you place it just in front of the chicken cage, what would happen? The first chicken will look at it, it will look around, and that's the first thing you do as human beings. We look around to get permission from everyone else, do I dare to take this corn? Well, I pick it now, and the other chicken would take it as well, because they feel safe to take the corn just in front of the cage. And then you'll place another corn a little bit further away, and a little bit further away, and then you'll get into the chains. What we have to do now you can't change all this stuff in day one. But what you can do is, if you sit in a company right now, or you're frustrated about this, that's to find one little change you can do, which can create an impact. And once you do that little change, celebrate it. Celebrate the hell out of it in the organization. Because what would happen is two things. You will give permission to other people so they can start change. And by the way, you will create a safety net underneath you that you can continue doing the change. Don't do the big full Monty of change because you can't do it. And I think a lot of people are daunted by the, the idea of that, my God, I can't change anything. Yes, we can change things. We just need to do it in small bite-sized steps, right? So, Martin, I want to go back to something you said earlier. I, I completely agree with you. You said something that is, is, is firing, which is people are afraid to stand out. Yeah. And so... There's at least a couple dimensions I can see here. One is sort of the procedure or policy oriented stupidities that end up showing up, you know, all the forms you have to fill or whatever the thing is. Right. So there's procedure or policy stuff that we have to stand up and to quote the big Lebowski say, this aggression will not stand, man. Right. This is just fucking stupid. We're not doing it. Right. So there's an element of raging against that machine. Yeah. There's also, um, and I'm sort of thinking out loud here with you, there's a human development, which you, or there's a human component, which you touch on. And the way I think about the human component is the people that I love, period, never mind love to work with, are the people who refuse to be anything other than themselves. And so in a work environment, they're who they are. Now, yes, they're the work use case of who they are, and we all have different use cases of who we are, and we're all, we all modify our behavior based on the situation. Of course, I'm not being ignorant of that. But what I am saying is that um, the person you meet in the office or the person you collaborate with is plus or minus the same person you'd have a beer with, plus or minus the same person they'd be with their personal friends or spouse or partners with. They're generally the same person, and their refusal to sort of play some role to fit in as opposed to uh, having the courage to stand out 
A, is something admirable, and B, invites others to do the same. But I sort of say all that like thinking out loud to get your reaction. Well, my, so first of all, I agree with you. And I'll give you a technique, which I think everyone should use. So an experiment was done some years ago where uh, people's brains were analyzed while they were attending a campfire. And what they realized was the campfire it not only creates a sense of belonging, it also um, gives a feeling of uh, freedom. You can express your emotions, you can tell the truth, you feel like this is a moment where you can express yourself. And, and what was fascinating about this is this is really empathy. So what we did was we took this study on board and we said, how can we create this similar feeling in a company? So I decided that for one company called Lowe's, we decided to, every Friday afternoon, to shut down the lights at two or three o'clock in the afternoon. And then we had a projector projecting a campfire on a screen. We placed a light on the floor. We had people placed in a circle around this uh, light on the floor. And we had a speaker playing the sound of this crackling sound. And then we switched off the light. It's pitch black. And what happened was people started to tell the truth. They started to express themselves in ways they would never done before in a corporate environment. Why? Because we tapped into this inner reptile brain of no, the very basic behaviors. And because we couldn't see each other, so we would tell things. It will express itself. And that type of thing is powerful. Another thing I'm, I'm quite often doing is I'm saying to people, I'd like you to prepare your last speech and do that by the end of this, this month. Not because you're fired, it's not that. But I want you to tell the last speech for, for the people in your department. And what is fascinating is when people do that, it becomes incredibly emotional. And everyone else can relate to that person. And suddenly you peel off the corporate layer. And that corporate layer means we become human. And human means that suddenly empathy is reinstalled. And once that happens, people will start to say, I'm frustrated about this. I think this should be changed. Why don't we work together on it? And that comes back to your contract. Suddenly I'm saying, let's work together on it and make it happen. That basically means I'm saying to you, let's give it a little bit each and give and take leads into a common denominator where we can make things happen rather than I'm black and you're white and there's no in between. Yeah. Yeah. I got you. Now, if I, uh, let's say I was a CEO or a senior executive and I was saying, you know what, somehow our culture has gotten away with us here. And some of these things that Martin's writing about and talking about are, are bang on. And maybe I do want to take them on on this crazy idea and set up a ministry of common sense. Uh, how would I go about doing that, Martin? The first thing you have to do, in my opinion, is you need to create a sense of empathy. Now, you can do that in multiple ways. We can talk about the, the campfire, but you can also ask people to uh, use a Polaroid camera or use their smartphones and take photos of all the stupidities they experience every day. So imagine you go to work and you will experience it every day. You will see the warning disclaimer in the elevator. You will look at this coffee machine, which is stupid, and all this stuff. Take photos of it. Write a note underneath. And then you'll all meet up one day and hang all this stuff on the wall. All the things frustrating you. Without a name on, just hang it in a wall in one room. After a week, most likely all walls will be plastered with stupidities, right? What I call nonsense. At that stage... You walk around and you put post-it notes on what is most stupid. 
but also what can be solved the quickest. And that is the one you attack. Then you have a couple of people cross-functionally which are going to address this issue. And what you have to do, this is the trick. It's what I've learned. It's taken me a long time to learn. You need to install a solution which also can earn money at the same time. Now, this sounds counterintuitive, but actually it's possible. I'll give you an example. So, for example, if you take Toyota, the car brand in Japan, they wanted to save the environment but also save money at the same time. Is that possible? Really not, unless you look at the world in a different light. They realize they have all these buildings, warehouses, big production plants, and they have all these different robots working there. And the question was, of course, do we really have to have light on? There's no one in those production plants. Why don't we just switch off the light? And that can save them millions of dollars by saving the environment, but also uh, saving money. You actually can do that by installing common sense. I'll give you an example from my own world. We have a research team traveling around the world all the time, filming people in their homes to understand human behavior. Now, people lost their cameras all the time. It was driving you mad. These beautiful cameras gone. So I said to them, what is your kid's name at home? And one person had Mike. Mike's six-year-old. I said, okay, let's call that camera for Mike. He never lost the camera later. That's my, that's my opinion here. It's very simple. You create, you activate all these different issues. You find one little thing you want to change. And once you change it, you will see two things are happening. Common sense is restored, you're saving money. The money you save, you split that in two. You take half of the money and you give it back to that division and say, congratulations, job well done. And the other half, you say, okay, let's lose those money to evolve and install a better customer experience. And then suddenly what happens is we're installing common sense internally and externally. And that's really the approach. It's super simple, but it requires some guts, it requires a laser focus through this process. Is it possible? Absolutely. I mean, in the bank we talked about, I removed 1,900 what I call stupidities. In, in, the, in, in MERS, we talked about, we removed more than 2,000. Uh, it's possible to do. And what happens is, think about it, in one other financial institution I work with, they had a manual of abbreviations. So you had to use a manual to look up the abbreviations, so you could find the right abbreviation because you're not allowed to use the full-length word, so you need to have a manual for it. So we got rid of it. In another bank, they had a rule book which was containing all the rule books they had. So you had to look up at the rule books to find the rule book you had to use for that rule, right? So we started to kill rules because here's what the issue is. In banks, they love to create these compliance, love to create rules. And I once interviewed the lady, I said to her, what is it with these rules? Why don't you kill rules? So we created this rule in, rule out. If you create a new rule, we have to kill a new rule. I said, I can't do that. It will show I'm failing because I created this rule seven years ago. I said, is the world evolving around you? Like, I mean, the parliament can't have fixed rules which are lasting for 200 years. Neither can you. Oh, I never thought about it like that, she said. And then we actually had the rule and rule out. This is the type of th mindset we need to install. But right now we're just acquiring layer after layer on top of each other. And it ends up by being this convoluted maze of what I call this invisible stage jacket, which is just not fun to live in and working. Amen. Hallelujah, Martin. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else you'd like to touch on before we kick out? 
Listen, I, I just want to say to everyone who is listening at the moment that I think this is time for us now to put a line in the sand and say enough is enough. I, I admire so many people who can live with this stuff, but I have to tell you, whenever I work in a company and we give free oxygen, we release that stretch jacket, for some reason, people start to smile again. And I cannot count the number of people which I'm meeting every day which says to me, I really don't want to work anymore because I just can't handle it anymore. Now, we have only one life. And I believe it's the journey making the life. It's not the end station making the life when you're retiring. So I think, why don't you give it a go? Because what you're leaving behind, your legacy, is not just your name. It's also a bunch of shit. Which is all these rules, if you haven't cleared it up for the next generation, which have no ability to remove that stuff. So if you believe in what I'm saying, do me a favor. Think about one thing you can change in a company. Just one nonsense thing. And then turn it into common sense by using your best of abilities. And then I think we're getting it because that's one piece of corn you're picking up, eating it, and hopefully that can create a <laughs> movement, right? Absolutely. And I'll tell you, as a guy with bo uh, with hens, uh, they, they respond to food and kindness, as I think most, most of us do. And uh, interestingly enough, on that discussion, my wife, Carrie, and I adopted two feral cats two years ago. And when we got them, they were literally hissing and spitting at us. And today they sleep in the bed. Wow. So change is possible. Change is very possible. And actually, maybe before I let you go, if I could, on that, as you were talking about sort of the human lack of desire to embrace change. I, I understand that. And when people talk about that, the aha for me though, if I look at my own life, the vast majority of the most valuable, the things that I would say have been legendary experiences and or achievements and or just things I enjoy have come from the result of embracing some kind of exponential change. Yeah. I think that's a reality. Some of it's incremental. There's a place for that. I don't want to be overly simplistic, but, uh, you know, podcasting as a simple example has become an incredible joy in my life. Well, that's an exponential change from what I was doing five years ago, 10 years ago. Um, I learned to surf later on in life. That's an extreme, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so we have many of these things in our lives and so why don't, I guess, Martin, why don't we learn that exponential change often leads to wonderful, incredible things in our lives? Why don't we learn that and em embrace it more? I think that, so I agree with you. And I, I have this mantra I'm working with, with is that you get three opportunities in your life. And we, if you take them, uh, you get another three. And if you don't, that's it. And um, one lady came up to me when I moved from one country to another and she said to me, it was a co-worker, she said to me, Martin, you always get these amazing opportunities. And I said, no, I don't. You just don't see them. Because we all get them, but we don't see them for some reason. And perhaps because we don't dare to see them. I fundamentally believe that if I was hit by a car on the road and I flew in the air and I had these three seconds to think about my whole life in reverse order, I would like to end my last sentence by saying I did everything I wanted to do. And that's really the rules I'm living by. And that's the reason why I do all these crazy things I do. But you know what? I never regret it because it's given me so many more opportunities 
which in many ways is my legacy, not just to myself, but also to other people because I'm breaking barriers and hopefully also making it good for other people at the same time. And I love that about you. And you're welcome back anytime, Martin. Uh, I know you're a marketing guru. We didn't spend much time on that at all. Uh, I would love to crack open a big marketing discussion with you as one of the uh, greatest marketing authors in history. Uh, so you're welcome back anytime. I think you're amazing. I loved digging into your new book and I uh, really, really want to thank you for a wonderful conversation. I can only say the same. Thank you uh, so much. It's been a great pleasure to be on your show, I have to say. And, and I can confirm one thing that is you are a pretty cool guy. Let's have a beer next time without any legal disclaimers, without any lawyers, HR, <laughs> and just talk about the truth. It would be my pleasure. I'll buy the first round. <laughs> Definitely. Take care. Well, there he is, the living legend, Martin Lindstrom. How do you like that conversation? How do you like that idea? Now, uh, we are clearly living in the data age, and my friends at Splunk are the category queens and kings of data to everything. They help you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. And not long ago, uh, my brother from another mother, Eddie Yoon, who is the single most contributing person to the Harvard Business Review on the topic of category design, he and I discovered a direct connection between building a data flywheel and becoming a category-dominating company, so much so we even wrote an article for HBR about it. And that's because data today is the strategic assets of category designers, of CEOs, and of anybody who cares about building a category-dominating business. Learn how you can turn data into doing today at splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E, as in data to everything. And in times like these, being flexible and adaptable is critical for survival and ultimately to thrive. And that's why I'm so proud that uh, Oracle NetSuite has been with us for so long. You see, at NetSuite, the flexibility is built in. NetSuite allows you to scale the business up. And if you had to, scale the business down, spin things off, uh, adopt new business models, change go-to-market, enter new distribution channels, and frankly, whatever you need to do to uh, shuck and jive to be successful today, NetSuite's flexibility allows you to do it all quickly and easily. And that's why 63% of recent tech IPO companies run NetSuite. Check out netsuite.com slash different today. That's netsuite.com slash different for your free product tour. All right, we would like to thank the legendary Martin Lindstrom, his new book. Check it out, The Ministry of common sense how to eliminate bureaucratic red tape bad excuses and corporate bullshit <laughs> how's that for a legendary subtitle uh, check it out wherever you get legendary books today my friends at onelifefullylive.org are the nonprofit helping you dream plan and live your best life uh, also do you uh, do your people think your company is awesome we live at a time where companies need to communicate to their people quickly my friends at Socrates.ai are the technology that allow you to text or talk any HR related question and deliver a response that's called employee awesome check out Socrates.ai today and are you feeling uh, whelmed uh, overly that is my friends at bottleneck assistants are here to help you with the power of a distant assistant check out bottleneck.online today and if you're a thought leader and you want to get your leading thoughts on leading podcasts 
go and visit my friends at interviewvalet.com. That's interviewvalet.com, and they'll get you on some of the world's leading podcasts. And if you want to help teachers right now who are trying to make a difference for our kids, and man, I don't know that it's ever been tougher. Why not visit my friends at donorschoose.org. Make a contribution to help kids uh, with their classroom work today at donorschoose.org. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is this whole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. And um, if you love it, why not share it? The greatest gift you can give us, the greatest thank you you can give us, is to share the shit out of this oddcast. All rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that clearly this oddcast does get created in a studio that contains nuts. We go better with libations. We are produced by Jamie J and Sarah Knox. Um, edit it. <laughs> no, sorry. Lockhead.com is produced by Jamie J and Sarah Knox. The podcast or the oddcast is produced by the goat himself, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Remember to listen to Van Halen. Tom Waits was right. Don't eat the yellow snow. Remember to support your local small businesses and restaurants. Call your mother. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time around here. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Harvey Weinstein. Sorry, Harv, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please be safe. Be good to yourself and others. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your difference.